HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop in East Williamsburg, with a new location opening in Hell's Kitchen. Learn more at bkballfactory.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Takiko Katayama, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guest. And my guest today is Douglas Diaz, who was a professor of architecture at Columbia University and now a full-time artist. I met Douglas while I was on vacation in Japan last September. Douglas has truly a unique experience of living in an area called Higashiyoshino, near Kyoto, which had suffered from decreasing population. And today we will talk about Douglas' fascinating stories about living in Higashiyoshino to become, to become an artist, his culinary discoveries in Japan, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japanese is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as iTunes and Stitcher podcast. Please go to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe to Japanese. Also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. Uh, you can email us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org. Now, let's start our conversation with Douglas Diaz. Hello, Douglas. Welcome to Japanese. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a kind of weird that we met in the middle of uh, the village <laughs> <laughs> in the Higashiyoshino last time, but uh, you're back in New York. so Yeah, it's such an interesting contrast to see people in, in a village remotely in the mountainside of Japan and then in an urban setting is right. a little bit bizarre. And especially because you're from here, New York. Yes. Right. So yes. what's your background? So I was born in New York uh, to um, Dominican parents. Um, and I was born, uh, which is very strange, I guess, for people to live in Brooklyn and be from Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
I grew up um, largely in, in Brooklyn, but I did travel a little bit to Dominican Republic, mm. uh, Venezuela, um, and always New York was my home, mm. um, probably until I actually left um, in 2013. Um, and it was the first time that I made, I think as an adult, a conscious choice to mm. go live somewhere else and not just vacation or spend a few months, but mm. to completely relocate. Right. So before that, you were teaching, I mean, you were majoring in architecture and then you've been teaching and doing a lot of work. Yeah. So I lived in California for a few years um, to go to undergraduate and then I returned to New York, um, mm. which is kind of the pattern. <laughs> um, and I went to Columbia University. Um, and then shortly after that, I started teaching. Um, and eventually I did a whole lot of different other things, um, working for an advertising firm and all these things. But everything always related back to design or something creative. Mm. Um, and then in the late fall of 2013, uh, my girlfriend at the time, we went to Hawaii to get married. Mm. Um, and from there, we I was doing work in Japan and I always was in and out of Japan for many different reasons. But I, at that moment, uh, once, once we got married, we ended up in uh, Tokyo. Mm. And we made a choice to go to uh, Nara uh, because it was Golden Week. Mm -hmm. So part of getting out into the countryside. Right. Um, and it was really fascinating because we were on Airbnb mm. trying to find a, a place in Nara. Right. So the, for listeners who are not familiar with Nara, Nara is uh, like... Uh, I would say one-hour trip, train trip from uh, Kyoto or Osaka, and uh, it's the I think the oldest imperial city yes, in the whole and, Japan. And it and it also has this uh, reputation for being a very spiritual place. Um, mm. Some of the largest Buddhas and uh, some of the most sacred temples um, are in Nara. Mm. So part of Golden Week, which is this incredible celebration um, that has is largely based, I, I think, on a spiritual platform, but mm. is also a time where Japanese people usually go back to their home right. um, spend time with their family. Yeah, the Golden Week is like, I think, Japanese people work too hard, too much. That I think, I think one time Japanese government created the whole, you know, the consecutive national holidays. So in May, so people travel, like Thanksgiving on here now. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and we were on our way there, um, and my wife at the time, uh, she had... Uh, looked on Airbnb for a place in Nara, mm. but Nara Prefecture, um, when you search uh, in Airbnb, is almost the same as Nara City. Mm. Um, and we found a place in Nara Prefecture, which right. is basically the equivalent of New York State versus New York City. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we ended up in a place that was an hour and a half away from mm. Nara City. Uh, so that was an adventure to get out there. Right. <laughs> Um, and that's how we ended up in Higashi Yoshino. Okay, yeah, I, I know exactly because I stayed at the same Airbnb last summer, but it's really remote. It's in the middle of a mountains. And I heard um, if you go, go up to one of those mountains, you could find 400-year cypress tree. But yes. now old people, like really old guys, only knew how to get there, and they all died. So it's kind of... You cannot approach them. Yeah, and, and it's really fascinating because the the, the town itself, uh, Higashi Yoshino, is well, Yoshino, like the county, is known for its sakura. Mm, so it it, right. it really gets a, an incredible amount of tourism, especially around um, the cherry blossom, which is what sakura is. Mm -hmm. And in the springtime, it's just a really beautiful place to be. Right. Um, and Higashi Yoshino is is kind of like this 
hidden jewel within mm. Yoshino. Um, and like you said, there's many trees that are completely untapped. But now it's all, I think it's all starting to change because they're planting okay. trees that are really grown for cutting and exporting mm. as opposed to the way the Japanese have traditionally left the, the hillsides untouched. Right. Well, too bad. Hopefully it's not going to be too much. Well, it's a really interesting problem because the population is decreasing. So right. <laughs> I think nature will take over. <laughs> In a way. Right. Um, so speaking of the population, it's only 1,700 people in the village. Right. So, so you stayed at the Airbnb. And then what happened? So at the Airbnb, I had this very kind of uh, quasi-mystical experience um, <laughs> where I met... Uh, Kasu-san, uh, or Sakamoto Kasuyuki, mm-hmm. in the Sakamoto family, as you did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and his English, which is not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so he owns, the, actually, the Airbnb with his family. With his family, and yes. Family. And his wife is uh, is uh, Kuniko. Mm-hmm. I, I call her Kuniko-san and Kasu-san. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the one that speaks English much more right. uh, proficiently. Um and so she kind of makes all the arrangements of Airbnb. And, and then if you would have stayed longer, she would have probably asked you to help her with uh, making arrangements for foreign speakers, as she did with me. <laughs> um, but I, I met them and completely fell in love both with the place and also their, their beautiful energy and, and just hospitality. Mm. Um, and I went back to Kyoto after a few days. Um, and in the middle of the night, I woke up and I thought, I need to go back. Wow. So I called. I called Kuniko-san and I told her I want to come back and they said, please do. And then I came back and spent another five days. Um, wow. But I went by myself. Um, but you were on a honeymoon. I was supposed to be on a honeymoon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, and I went back and the next morning, uh, Kasu-san knocked on my door at five in the morning and gave me a pad of paper and a pencil and said, draw. Mm. And he had no idea that I that I actually did any drawings or did mm. anything of the sort. Right, because uh, if you stay at the Airbnb of uh, Kazusan, it's you're basically buried in his artwork. Yes. Right. So the wheelhouse, it's like a cottage, and then you basically um, are really becoming on a staying in a museum or something. Yes, it's um, it's really interesting. Uh, they refer to it as the atelier. Um, they spent uh, seven years in the 70s in, in Paris. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of uh, Parisian influences in his work and his kind of way of thinking and vocabulary. In mm. fact, it, he speaks better French than he does English. Right, um, And part of it is this incredible, as you were, you were just talking about, it's, it's almost like a cathedral to his work. Um, mm. It's a building that he built by hand. I didn't know that. Yeah, and... Um, the section of the Airbnb is actually like a third. Hmm. And two-thirds is basically just a museum right. <laughs> to all his artwork that he's been creating for 40 years. Hmm. Um, he paints every day. Right. So the house is completely filled with paintings everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think spiritually, it's facing a small river. So I keep hearing that sound of uh, you know, running river. Running water, yeah. Right? And in the morning, you wake up with it. And it's kind of... Uh, you know, meditating environment. Completely. And uh, the strangest thing is um, when you wake up in the mornings and you hear the river, it's this constant flow. Mm. But it, it, the river obviously ebbs and flows, but so does the sound. Mm. And I think it has a lot to do with um, the ability for most people who come visit to find peace and relaxation. Mm. Um, and a lot of people, like myself, when they first go there, 
come with all these plans to go hiking, to go visit the shrines and all these things. And in the first few days, you just sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was wondering about that. Yeah. So, so basically, you're inspired by all those artwork and meditative um, environment. So you wanted to start becoming an artist. That's what... Yeah, after, f- after five days, I, it was um, this bug that just got into me. And I, and I was on a month-long trip through Japan, so I had to leave. I had to go see the other places that we had made bookings for. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I, uh, I ended up going to Europe for a while, and then I came back. And for that year, I just, every single chance I could, I would go back to Higashi Yoshino wow. and spend time with them. Mm-hmm. They came to visit in Hawaii, and... After dinner one night, we were joking that I should move to Japan, and Kasu-san said, yes, I'll find you a house. <laughs> and it ended up being the house next to his. Mm. So I moved. Wow. Okay. Um, well, there's another, and we're going to talk about it later, but, you know, that's decreasing population thing. There's another project. So you perfectly yes. fit in that kind of, uh, you know, the picture and their plan and your plan. Yeah, it's, it's, they always have a, an ulterior beautiful motive, but... Is always uh, mm. repopulating, I guess you know, <laughs> which I think they were trying to get you to do. <laughs> yes, I, I was try, almost uh, convinced to, you can do a radio show in Higashi Yoshino. I was like, yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> right. Okay. But uh, so you don't speak Japanese so much, but how did you live and survive in a small village like that? I think you're being very kind. I don't speak Japanese at all. <laughs> I know about 30 words, enough to get me into trouble. Um, it's, it, you know, the the thing about a small village, you, you mentioned it's 1,700, um, but the side of our village is about 180 people. Mm. Um, and it, people are just, and there's some older population, I think the average age is 70. Oh, wow. Um, but most of these people have had some exposure to English. Mm. Um, so there's a, a, a general kind of friendliness um, and an openness to you know, to greet people and, and to engage. Mm. Um, and it's amazing if you say konnichiwa correctly. It, it goes a very long way. Mm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it did help a lot to have Kasu-san and Kuniko-san there um, because I relied a lot on them mm. for most of my interactions, mm-hmm. uh, especially dealing with uh, logistics and legal issues. Ah, right, right. And also I think, uh, I think you told me that they're kind of patrons. Physically, they fed you... Dinner. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I was completely spoiled. I mean, everybody thinks that I, I went to the mountains and had a harsh monastic kind of life, but in fact, I probably gained weight. <laughs> <laughs> Just ate delicious Japanese food all the time. Wow, so because Kuniko-san is a good uh, cook too. She's an amazing cook. Mm. And it actually is, they take a lot of pride in cooking. Mm. Um, so the entire family is uh, incredible chefs. Everybody cooks. Everybody has a specialty that they cook. So throughout the week, um, cooking duties rotate. Mm. Uh, Kuniko-san, I I would say, probably carries the the most amount of of the Mm. work in terms of cooking. When I was staying there at the Airbnb, uh, a couple of times she brought some really delicious traditional Japanese food, and I was so thrilled. Yeah, she did the same thing to me the first time I was there, and mm. I never ate any of the things that I bought. <laughs> I ended up just eating with them all the time. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so basically the Sakamoto family, uh, they have three sons, and then two live with them. 
Yes. Right now. So. Um, yeah, so the two sons that live there is um, the older son, uh, Daisuke Sakamoto, and he has something called Office Camp. Mm -hmm. um, he's getting married. Is that okay to say in the air? Anyway, um, <laughs> he uh, he's moving uh, to another atelier that they uh, that they have, mm. um, and the younger son, um, uh, the the middle son uh, Takeshi, is lives with them and uh, basically does everything around the house in terms of mm. cutting wood, um, preparing meals, um, taking care of their financial life. Right. So it's, it's an interesting. Uh, kind of family structure. Right. Um, and he himself is uh, an artist. He yes. draws only dragons, I, I learned. Yes, and it's um, around Nara, there's, uh, you can see some of his work in temples, and it's quite fascinating. They're a very creative family. And the youngest son who lives in a city ne nearby uh, has a coffee shop, but he makes uh, lighting fixtures. Oh, wow. He has very, very beautiful work. Mm. Well, let's talk about that, you know, the office camp that you mentioned that the cousin's the oldest son does. Yeah, it's a really fascinating... Um, they're a very entrepreneurial family in general. Um, and Daisuke moved back. Uh, he was living in Osaka, uh, mm. which is the prefecture next to it, um, but also a very large city. And I think after a certain amount of discontent and maybe even getting a little bit sick of living in a, mm. in a big city, he moved back to Higashi Yoshino. And in that process, we stumbled across one of the biggest problems that Japan has, which is uh, the depopulation of the countryside. Mm. And so he's created a, a really beautiful, um, it's a physical, physically a gorgeous uh, space. And it is, um, it, it basically serves as a hub to attract uh, younger populations back to the countryside. Mm. Um, and at the core of it is a coffee shop, and it also has a meeting workspace, mm. so sort of like a, a shared office environment. But in a very traditional Japanese style, it also has um, a series of sleeping spaces, tatami rooms in the upstairs. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been growing in popularity, so now he's traveling around Japan uh, mm. showing this model of how to attract younger people to the countryside. He's received funding from Tokyo, mm. from Nara Prefecture, so he has a lot of support. Right. Um, it's an incredible space. Yeah, I, I actually visited the space too, and then it's very Japanese, but you can think of, you know, Brooklyn, uh, shared space, kind of office space, Completely. and Wi-Fi and modern. And uh, it's... Very good coffee. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's just a really a good idea to be... Germanite the place and then yeah because I, I think the purpose is there's no corporations we have to bring in entrepreneurs and artists and those people who can create jobs yeah I mean the, the Japanese countryside is fascinating because um, industry has been leaving mm. um, and with it the younger population leave because there's no work mm. um, not everybody wants to be a farmer and so the problem of how to bring back youth um, to not only uh, rejuvenate the place, but also mm. maintain traditions and cultures. So, but in a in a classic twist, um, it is modern at the same time. It's not just a very traditional. Mm. So it's a thing that I found really fascinating about Japan is anything that is sustainable in Japan is rooted deeply in this history, mm. but then embraces technology, embraces moving forward. So it's a really beautiful balance. I think is something very different from the West, where we tend to criticize our history and then we try to disconnect our history. Mm. In Japan, it's, you can't move forward without bringing the history through. 
Interesting. Um, and so there's a, re- a lot of um, symbiotic relationships between history and then the future. Mm. I think uh, Japanese people don't mind that we have to succeed the tradition and not mess with it, and they have to build on on top of something. Exactly. Know, right. And it gives it a beautiful depth, um, which you know I think more things in the West have, could benefit from doing things like that. Mm. Right. So. Um, how successful was an office camp? I mean, I think it's going strong. Yeah, it's uh, incredibly successful. When I was there, um, he has spent uh, the last two weeks traveling through Sendai, which was deeply affected by the tsunami and, mm. and the earthquake and a few years ago. And one of the things that that area is looking at is how to bring back um, mm. youth into that right. zone to rejuvenate it. Mm. Uh, so he has spent some time... Uh, cultivating this prototype and, and how to build it right. um, in Nagata, in Nagano. Mm. So he's he's spending a lot of time traveling through Japan doing it. So it's a it's a really beautiful model. Right. Um, and it's in, I'm probably not doing it enough justice for what it is, but it is a mixture of both uh, support at the prefecture level, mm. support at the city level, um, and then requiring a lot of young people to come. So in Higashi Yoshino, since I've been there, mm. um, the last three years, I think about 40 mm. people under 40 years old have moved to the oh, village, wow. which is an, an incredible percentage given right. the fact that it only has 1,700 people. <laughs> right. Interesting. So, yeah, and actually I met a, a photographer, a comic book author, and uh, any other artist kind of people. And I, one of them invited me, uh, me to his house to just show around like three minutes away from the office camp. And he showed it. I think he tried to convince everybody, you can live, uh, you can live this way. And I think for three big bedroom house, he paid only $250 a month. Yeah, right. yeah, it's a it's interesting because all all this the new generation takes a lot of pride in moving to the countryside, and everybody becomes many ambassadors mm. to promote this new way of living. Right, um, that is stress free, uh, deeply rooted in nature, mm. and it is um, I would say is also uh, a very kind of creative environment to be in. It's mm. very, it gives you a lot of inspiration. Right. Like the so, river on the, the by the cottage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm. But it is interesting that it is the, the creative force that's moving into areas mm. like that. People who can work flexibly from many different areas, who need that space, right. both physically and, and spiritually, to, mm. to prosper. Right. And you can, for thanks to the internet, you can do anything, basically. Exactly. Right. Okay, um, let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about Douglas' favorite Japanese food in Higashi Yoshino. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop located at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Behind its large steel doors, Brooklyn Ball Factory is brewing up some of the city's best tea and coffee. Grab a pour-over, matcha latte, or yuzu ginger mint tea. For lunch, Brooklyn Ball Factory offers sandwiches and curries. Or think inside the box and order one of their bentos, like meatball, grilled veggies, or pork shabu-shabu. The meatballs, a favorite, are made with beef chuck roll and short rib in a sweet sour sauce of apples cooked in soy. And did we mention the roof deck? After your coffee and food have been prepared, climb the staircase behind the counter to find an oasis in the middle of Brooklyn. 
Visit Brooklyn Ball Factory at 95 Montrose Avenue in Williamsburg and check out their new location opening in Hell's Kitchen. Learn more at bkballfactory.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Douglas Diaz, who was a professor of architecture at Columbia University and now full-time artist. Douglas spent the past three years in a small village called Higashi Yoshino in Japan to become an artist. So now let's talk about the Japanese food uh, that you enjoyed in Higashi Yoshino. So first of all, what did you eat normally in Higashi Yoshino? Um, well, the, the diet in the countryside of Japan is, is quite distinct, I think, from cities, uh, even Kyoto or, or Tokyo, mm. in the sense that it's, um, it's largely vegetable-based. Mm. Um, and despite the fact that, Higa, that Nara is landlocked in Higashi Yoshino, is deep in the mountains, you mm. do get an incredible amount of fish, uh, largely from the river. Mm. Um, but you also get you know, your typical fare um, that you would find in any uh, I guess in any part of Japan, mm. you know, tunas and mackerel and so forth. Right. Um, and what we, Kuniko-san, um, largely cooked um, most meals. And, um, and that's kind of, I think, standard for living in a the countryside. There's not, you know, the closest door was about 45-minute drive. Mm. Um, so you end up cooking a lot at home. Right. Um, and also Kasu-san and Kuniko-san have an incredible knowledge of the plant life that is in the village ah. so a lot of times depending on the season we would go picking for fresh wasabi or wow. uh, different kinds of fruit and um and on the i don't know if you remember but in the on the property itself mm. uh they they actually grow a lot of vegetables that then we consume mm. um and in seasons as well, seasoning as well so shancho which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. uh, spices right. is um it grows right next to the house mm. Right, so yeah, the sunsai is uh, basically mountain vegetables. Sounds like by hunting, they had sunsai and growing other vegetables like spices, like asancho, and yeah. <laughs> that's pretty local, sustainable. Yeah, it style. is, and they they are. I found that most Japanese people have ingrained, or at least in the countryside, have ingrained a sense of eating within a certain radius. So mm. the rice that we ate on a daily basis was uh, grown by a local family um, that was the father-in-law, the potential father-in-law of one of their sons. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so you get fresh rice, which is incredible. Mm. Um, uh, We we would have, uh, usually the mixture of of meal always contains some form of vegetables. Mm. Um, And in the very traditional sense of Japanese culture, you always have something raw, um, something fried, you know, something from tempura, um, steamed, and then always some kind of rice right, at the end. Right. Um, so that was a very basic um, kind of food. Mm. Um, but in the village, as it's a really, really tiny village, there was an incredible soba place. Um, okay. That I absolutely loved, and it's only open on the weekends. Mm. Um, but it's uh, it's probably one of the best sobas I've ever had in Japan. Wow. Um, so they only open only on weekends. So who's the chef? Do you know? Um, I forget his name, uh, which is awful because my Japanese pronunciation is really bad. Um, but they were a couple, or they are a couple that retired. Mm. Um, they were school teachers um, mm. up until about a few years ago. And they bought this house that is, uh, I think it's dated to be 400 years old structure. Mm. Um, 
and they remodeled it and they have a restaurant a soba restaurant that only works on the weekends and wow. he's basically become a master soba maker mm. um and I, I actually got to learn how to make soba from him really yeah there's uh, some really bad videos floating around of me doing that <laughs> we um, have to find out <laughs> yeah. um and it's a it's a really fascinating process because learning how to make soba from start uh, from scratch basically you you have to learn how to knead the, mm. the soba and and have the right combination of buckwheat and water right. um, water is very key and it comes from the river mm. and so it's very cold and it's uh, it's perfect for making soba wow. uh, but cutting probably the hardest part outside of kneading is actually cutting it really thin so that it's um every noodle strand is exactly the same mm. width um, which would allow it to cook perfectly because perfect soba cooks in two, two and a half minutes. Right. Um, which is not what you get when you buy a store-bought <laughs> Right, not the dried noodles. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so he makes a batch on Friday night um, that lasts through the weekend. And so there's only a certain amount of dishes that he can serve. Mm. And that relates back to how many seats there are in the restaurant Aye. both for saturday and sunday and then whenever it finishes it finishes mm. that's it actually when i stayed at uh airbnb kuniko-san said would you like to have soba and uh, we got so much food in the fridge at the supermarket yeah. he suggested buy a lot so so we couldn't afford it but i think i missed something very important well it's interesting uh, the the restaurant has um i believe it's four dishes uh basically zaru soba and then a uh, portion and a half of zaru soba which is item number two mm-hmm. <laughs> item number three is uh, soba with duck uh-huh. and then the portion number four is uh, zaru soba with duck and tempura mm. so the only basis of of the meals are basically zaru soba mm-hmm. right i think it's a kind of the test of the chef Exactly. Right. There's nothing else to hide the flavor. Yeah, exactly. Right. And um, one of his secrets for uh, the the dipping sauce mm. is that he doesn't use bonito flakes, which is um, very traditional. Right. Um, he actually uses fish stock. Oh, um, wow. And that changes. I won't talk about which fish it is because it's a secret thing. But, <laughs> okay. But it actually changes the, the flavor entirely. Mm. Um, and as you, I don't know if your guests know, but most soba, you have a dipping sauce, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, has a dashi base. But, um, but after that is a series of other ingredients. Mm. And dipping this noodle is really key mm. um, to the process of, of then um, eating the soba. Right. And then, of course, the other thing that he does is have fresh wasabi that grows in his backyard. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> right. It's interesting. I would imagine that dashi is uh, based on ayu, that sweet fish from the river. Yes. That's my imagination. But It's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that, that was uh, my favorite uh, food in um, Higashi Yoshino well, is actually part of the town uh, Haibara where you come into the train station. Mm. I found this in, well, I didn't find. It's been there forever. <laughs> um, and I was uh, bought to the restaurant, but... Um, is an incredible unagi restaurant. Mm. Um, and like most unagi shops in Japan, uh, they only serve unagi. So you can get unagi in many different forms. Mm. Um, and the the flavors are absolutely spectacular. The only place that's better, in my opinion, is um, the home of unagi, which is in Nagoya. Mm. Um, but it's incredible. Um, it's a family-owned restaurant. So 
mother and father own the shop and then mm. the kids work there. Um, it's open on it's open every day except for Thursdays, mm-hmm. um, and you can get lunch and dinner, uh, but they they limit the amount of uh, right. seats. I mean, we almost went to the restaurant, but I, we ran out of time, so we couldn't go there. But you said it takes a long time because they they make nagi after you order it. Yes, it's right. not it's not pre cooked, which um, most places do. Mm. Um, they there is cooked three times. Um, so it's broiled on both sides, and then mm. uh, then the last, or steamed, broiled, and then broiled again, um, and then the sauce is added in the second broiling. Mm. Um, so it, it really cooks into the flavor. Right. And then he spends uh, a lot of time picking out all the um, all the bones. <laughs> so it's a very elaborate and, and uh, a very elaborate process. Mm. Okay. And he also pairs it perfectly with sake wow. um, that comes from the region. Because once again, Higashi Yoshino has incredible mm. water, um, and then if you're ever there, uh, the best time to eat unagi is uh, at the end of June, beginning of July, because you get what they call young unagi. Mm. So it's much more supple, um, and he gets a very amazing batch of mm. unagi. Wow. Okay. So, um, but then basically, that's almost the only restaurant. Sounds like around the station. Um, there's about two other restaurants, um, and they they're Japanese take a lot of pride in, in meals and cooking, mm. so they are a specialty dish. Um, but the Nisunagi restaurant is probably the the key mm. shining star of of Haibara and, and of the region. Right. So Haibara, I think uh, it's about. Uh, one and a half to Kyoto. Station. Yes, if you if you take the the express train, it's about forty five minutes on the local train, mm. which I've done by mistake a few times. It takes <laughs> two hours, <laughs> right. um, and it's a uh, it's forty minutes um, mm. from Higashi Yoshino. So that was our sun, Sunday night special meal mm. was to go to Haibara and get unagi. Right, <laughs> so Sunday treat. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, so, what do you think? Uh, like you know, you said regional cuisine is very different from uh, you know the Japanese. Yes. What people say Japanese cuisine in big cities, and you know, as far as you see, you know, Japanese food in New York or you know nowhere. We have family in Miami. Do you think are very different? Oh, completely. It's um, <clears throat> it's really hard to actually compare. And everybody tells me that I'm super spoiled uh, mm-hmm. for living in Japan, um, but. The obviously, like with most cuisine, the the freshness of the ingredient makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, in Japan, uh, people eat regionally, so they eat always local fare. Um, mm. So depending on where you are, you you will have fresh fruit, uh, fresh food from that region. Um, in the mountainside, it's just really um, it's really beautiful because you get the full range of of the seasons, and mm. so your cuisine changes throughout the year. Um, it's very hard to pinpoint. Um, I think there's more flavors that are regional, mm. even though people might share a similar uh, produce or, or different um, rice or meats uh, across Japan, but the, mm. the actual seasoning changes per region. Right. Um, and then the mountainside is um, it's a it's based on freshness and, and it's a it's based on um, how can I say uh, it, it it allows the food 
to really become its own flavor. Mm. Um, and so wasabi is used sparingly, so it's not something that overpowers. Mm. Um, and with uh, eating with them was just an incredible treat because every meal was just cooked to perfection and it always had the right balance. Mm. Um, the one thing, if you're not familiar with home-cooked Japanese food, you have to be careful how much you eat every single plate <laughs> because there's about 20 plates that come through in a little meal. Right. Um, so at the first few months, I would always overeat at the beginning. Mm. Well, I think 20 is uh, far above the average because Kunika-san, yeah. yeah, that really like hospitality to you, I think. Yeah. Right? But, yeah. but I think number of the dishes and as, as well as especially vegetables. Yes, and, mm. and everything is cooked in, uh, in place on separate plates. So you end up having a lot of different little micro meals within the meal. Um, and then the hardest thing, I think, as a Westerner was um, that at the end of the meal is when you eat rice. Mm. So just when you're feeling full, then you have this bowl of rice, uh, mm. which is exquisite because it is uh, harvested uh, one town over. Mm-hmm. But, um, and it's very disrespectful not to eat rice in Japan. Right, because I think a lot of lot of us think there's a god in any single grain of uh, rice. So. Yes, and so you must eat every single grain right. that is served. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I was little, I was told until I finish, I cannot get up, get up and do something else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a lot of ingredients that she Kuniko-san and Kasu-san um, will spend months uh, laboring over and um, getting the right seasoning that they mm. prepare. So there's a, an incredible amount of food that is um, prepared and, and dedicated um, and energy that's basically just put into eating. Mm. Uh, it's a very critical part of their lives. Right. Maybe because you, they spend some time in Paris too. They're yes. kind of some passionate about food. Yes, they are. And, and they do have... Um, Kuniko-san was um, trained, if you will, in, in making microbiotic food mm, okay. in Paris. Um, so I think that translates really well into Higashi Yoshino, right. where because it's an incredible it, amount of vegetables. Um, Takeshi, the second son, had a, was very sick when he was young. So yes. it's kind of like natural and yeah. progressive movement in their yeah. family. Yeah, and, and they, um, I think because of it, they, they really pay attention to whole foods and it's not, uh, processed food is very mm. discouraged. Um, right. And then, of course, you know, they, there's a lot of pride in and eating local, mm. um, which is really beautiful. And, you know, we spend more time discussing the ripeness of tomatoes uh, from the region or, you know, uh, shiitake mushrooms or, <laughs> you know, you have to become an expert in food right. <laughs> in the countryside of Japan. <laughs> well, I think we have a very uh, good environment to be immersed into the real Japanese food. Yes, and it's, um, it's interesting because... Uh, there's a lot of conversation that we had at the at the dinner table where food is not just about nourishing the body but also nourishing the spirit mm. um, and nourishing creativity. So I can't count the amount of times that we would sit and have two-hour meals discussing the benefits of eating properly and, and mm. how that changes the creativity that you have. Um, the one thing that I haven't spoken about is the amount of desserts okay. um, that we have also within uh, the Japanese culture because I think as a Westerner, you, you always think about mochi or or green teas or right. um, that sort of thing. And, and in Japan, there's an incredible variety of, of desserts, mm-hmm. um, but it's a really beautiful rhythm of sweet, salt, sweet, mm. and salt that continues throughout. And then you pair it with teas. 
And so it is just as elaborate as the actual meal. Mm. Um, and it's a really beautiful balance, um, which allows also for great conversations to transpire. Mm. Do you remember one of your favorites or two? Um, it's a, it's a uh, I think it's called Ankh. Anko. Anko. Right, like um, uh, the, red, the red bean Red bean paste. Um, which is interesting because as a Dominican, uh, my family made desserts out of red beans. Okay. But it's not anything like this at all. Mm. So it was a really big cultural shock to, mm. to all of a sudden be eating beans and they're super sweet. Sweeter than anything I've ever had. Right. <laughs> Otherwise. It's a, it's a natural ingredient, but I think instead of um, Western sweets uh, fat, they use azuki beans. Yeah, exactly. For accent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so you spent all those great time in Japan, and how's your artist career developing? Well, um, that's part of the reason why I'm leaving Japan, I think. Um, in terms of creativity and inspiration, uh, Japan is number one. Mm. Um, and as so, it's, Japan will always be my spiritual home. Uh, but admittedly, living in the countryside in a village of 1,700 people mm. is harder to have an artist career. Right. Um, and I think uh, maybe just for clarification, I, I make um, large drawings with graphite. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a very strong analog component to it, um, which becomes harder to sell, for example, from Japan. Right. <laughs> um, and so I've had to travel um, both to exhibit, but also to then uh, develop that part of the career. Mm. Um, there's an incredible appreciation, I think, in Japan for creativity in general and for modern art. I think people get it. Mm. Um, but Japanese homes, and it's not a culture of consumption the same way that it might be in the West, for example. Right. So. Because the box is smaller, so you can't exactly. the large artwork. <laughs> exactly. Right. So that's why I'm ending up moving to Bangkok. Um, it has a very vibrant uh, city life. Mm. Um, but it, it shares a lot of, uh, I think, the spirit of Japanese culture in the sense of how peaceful people are, how welcoming they are. So the notions of hospitality are very important to me. Mm, right. So, um, so you've now uh, just moved to Thailand, and uh, that's going to be your place to practice Japanese mindset as well as, uh, I don't yeah. know, Buddhist mindset, maybe? Yeah, that's the challenge. Um, one of the things that I've um, been looking at is that my work is largely influenced by Zen. Mm. Um, and obviously between Zen and Buddhism is a very strong Buddhist uh, right. undercurrent to it, or rather I should say the Thai version of Buddhism. Mm. Um, so they, there's a lot of commonalities between them, right. uh, but there's also a significant differences. And one of the things that I've kind of sought for, for myself is the challenge of carrying Zen into an urban environment, into mm. a city as developed as Bangkok is, right. um, where it has a certain amount of um, busyness and congestion. Mm. Um, but one of the authors that I follow the most in Zen, um, he wrote Uchiyama. He wrote this uh, this beautiful line where he said, it's easy to be a, a monk in the mountains where you only have to worry about meditating. Mm. The problem is what happens when you go back to your life. Um, and I sort of that taken that as a challenge to say, okay, well, what happens when I go to the city? Mm. Worst case scenario, I'll go back to, to the <laughs> mountains in Japan, which yeah, is not bad. Right. So, but what's your um, inspiration for your work, regardless of where, you know, like the, I mean, it's Zen mindset, you can practice anywhere, but how do you do it? 
Yeah, so the one thing that happened in when I was living in, in Higashi Yoshino is um, through Kasu-san as an incredible mentor, um, my shisho, um, is that he really instilled the notion of, and this is something similar to Zen, is, is that within you there's the fountain of everything. The mm-hmm. universe exists within you. And the question is, how do you tap into it? Mm-hmm. How do you clear your mind to not get distracted by your desires or needs or wants and allow the wealth of that exists within you to flourish and how to tap into that. And that should happen regardless of the environment that you're in. Um, but it also isn't about blocking it out. It's actually about being hyper in touch with your environment as a way to get in touch with the reality of life. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of... Uh, we had the pleasure of drawing together in different environments. We drawn together in uh, in Hawaii, in Osaka, in in Hiroshima, um, and it changes everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but really, what's changing is how you interpret the environment that you're in. Mm-hmm. So being in touch with that is really key, right. both to my work, both to his, but also that's the basis of Zen. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Um, I think, so one of the things that I think is problematic about contemporary living is that we preface our minds, we preface our intellectual development, um, and that starts as early as being a little kid and and your parents rewarding you for memorizing names, colors, things like that. Um, And then obviously being in an academic environment is, Mm. is, you know, that's the major reward in our society. We reward people who are intelligent. Um, But that comes at a cost of not being in touch with your heart Mm. um, and not developing a spiritual path not necessarily a religious path but a spirituality Mm. and what I've worked on is is actually quieting my mind to allow me to understand what my heart is experiencing Mm. I like to say that um, the mind is really powerful and it produces a lot of imagination Mm. but it pales in comparison to what the universe can provide and our hearts are able to connect much more quickly to the universe than our minds can. Mm. So, so you meditate, and that's how you get to the. Yeah. So, in a in a very practical terms, um, I said every time before I draw, I said, um, and it ranges between ten minutes and forty minutes of meditation, depending on how much baggage I have that mm. day. <laughs> um, and the meditation is a zazen meditation, which means that you sit in a very particular posture. Mm. And um, the easy trick for beginners like myself is to count your mm. breath in and out until 10, and then you start all over again. Um, and if you mess up, you simply continue counting from 1 to 10. Mm. And if you get to 14, you know you've, you're not meditating you're now thinking (laughs) Um, and in the process of doing that um, what happens is you start to at least for me it it feels like this energy is rising Mm. um, and it comes through to your heart and it basically fills your heart up or Mm. it fills my heart up and then what I try to do is is not visualize it but just be in that presence of that energy Mm. Um, visualization is very difficult especially for me as a visual artist because I don't want to draw an image Mm. of what that emotion is. I want to draw the emotion itself. Mm. So I think of it as allowing the energy to fill up to my heart and then when it reaches my arms, then I try to move my arms. So before it goes to my head, because once it goes to my head and I start thinking, 
Am I angry? Am I happy? Am mm. I sad? And I'm no longer meditating. I'm right. thinking. Mm. Yeah, meditation is very hard. <laughs> I am trying to practice, but sometimes, you know, the noises in your head is hard to get rid of. So this is a key, very, very good point that you're raising. Um, in Zen, you would say, don't get rid of it. Mm. Because the act of pushing it is a thought. Ah. Just don't follow it. Right. So the book that I, I quote the most from and, and has been a large inspiration is called Opening the Hand of Thought. Mm. Um, and I just was very fortunate to meet one of the editors of the book in Hawaii, mm. a man named Tom Wright, who was a disciple of Uchiyama. Um, and his lineage of Zen is, is a very powerful one. Mm. Um, and the book is called Opening the Hand of Thought, which basically means like the clouds in the sky, you allow them to pass through. Mm. If you try to hold on to them, then you're thinking. Right. So you're aware, but you don't do anything with it. Exactly. Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's great. And uh, did you practice Zen meditation in uh, Higashi Yoshino in the first place? Yeah, I, I started uh, maybe more seriously in Hawaii. Um, but when I got to uh, Japan and Higashi Yoshina, I was able to go a lot deeper, mm. uh, both because the environment allowed it. Um, I carved out the time. Right. Um, but I also had the pleasure of meeting a Zen monk uh, who happened to be my same age, <laughs> um, but oozed, I guess, uh, wisdom. Mm. Um, and I was able to do a little bit of practicing with him and and kind of deepen my practice through that process. Wow. Um, and Zen is a very fascinating thing in Japan because most of the population would say that they don't know anything about Zen, mm. but they live a Zen-like life um, because it's so deeply embedded into the culture that there is no separation. Mm. Um, of course, those things are becoming now more infrequent and you know, westernization of Japan is really a very strong phenomenon. Mm. Right. But Zen is rooted in the consideration people have towards each other, towards the environment. So it's a really powerful, um, even eating. I mean, most of the meals that we ate were not unlike what Zen monks would eat. Mm. Um, you know, you don't, even though we have fried foods every once in a while, it's largely based on steamed uh, cooking or things that were prepared raw, mm. um, which is much more like what Zen monks would eat. Right. Mm. So just like uh, the mindset of um, the meditation, I think we tend to accept what we are given and be grateful for any kind of food at the table. So maybe that's a part of Zen. Yes, right. yes. And, and I love even that expression, itadakimasu, mm. right, which is a, a, a thanking. Right. Everything from the plant, the sacrifices, the people who've cooked it, the serving, mm. and the people who you're sharing that company with. Um, it's so, at, at its core, that's what Zen is about. Mm. It's both accepting, being grateful, right. and being in harmony with your surroundings. Mm. That's the harmony, yeah. Yes. Right. Okay, so this is the last question. So before we started, we had a conversation about your art, and then you said, art is not a career, but a way of life. So can you uh, elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, in, you know, I, maybe it's because I just came back from art basil in miami mm -hmm. where there's an incredible amount of um, systems put in place to create art um, mm -hmm. and it's become commodified in so many different ways which is you know not bemoaning the fact that art is an object that can be sold 
um, but it's become a way of of uh, of producing a career, producing a body of work that you do almost as separate mm. from the way that one lives. And what I learned in Higashi Yoshino is that if art is a way of life, then the way you eat, the way you sleep, the way you talk to other people is a form of art. Mm. Um, so the time that you spend making the work is not separate from the time you spend, for example, eating. Mm. Um, so Kasu-san um, really emphasized the fact that when you're an artist, you should have different times to do different forms of art. Mm. In the mornings, you work um, until sundown, never after the sun goes down. And you take enough time to actually have a life, um, which means how you eat, how you spend time with other friends, um, mm. your family life, and having a balance in those things. And mm. that, to me, is a way of life, as opposed to the career-driven model, which is you reach... You, you set out goals and then you try to reach them. Mm, so your art is an extension of who you are. So you have to build yourself to make exactly. a good art. That's very deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, it becomes a really useful tool when you, um, when you, you know, want to deepen a practice. It's, mm. it's very difficult to deepen a personal practice if you don't have a certain amount of devotion. Mm. Um, but the devotion is both an expenditure of energy right. and you can't expend purely energy. You have to be able to regroup, uh, reestablish your, your foundation of energy and then be able to do that again. Mm. So it's really critical. One thing that I talk to him a lot about is how much do you expend of energy and do you let energy sit and build up until you do it again the next day. Mm. So that's a very different model than the way I was educated in the United States where you just work as hard as possible mm. until you basically drop, which right. is what's happening in Japan in the city. Right, in the, in the modern, all modern countries, you know. Yeah, right? exactly. Right, but you have to allocate to build on top of something yes. very important. So... Okay, so um, hopefully uh, you can come back on the show again. We'd love to. Right, so, okay, so good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thanks right. for the opportunity to talk to you about right. my food obsession. Well, thank you for sharing really profound thoughts. Oh, thank you. So, thank you for coming. All right, so listeners, if you'd like to know more about Douglas activities, please visit uh, douglasdias.com. That is douglasdiaz.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, or the suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org. And Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher podcast. And please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Our engineer today is David Tatasure, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.